0: Welcome to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Each and every podcast hosts Mike Niemer and Greg Frank will bring you energy experts to help you better understand the renewable and sustainability space. Education is important to us because it's important to you, the listener. Now here's Mike Niemer and Greg Frank. It is episode
1: 190 of The Green Insider by E-Renewable. My name is Greg Frank. We're going to get to the podcast in just a minute with of course E-Renewable CEO Mike Niemer, and our guest on this episode. But before we go any further, we want to check in with Mike's better half, E-Renewable COO Ann Neimer has a few words for us. Here's Anne.
2: Ann Niemer here, COO of E-Renewable. We know today whether you're a public company, private equity or a privately held company, ESG and sustainability are important to your company. At eRenewable, we can help you achieve some of those goals. If you have any questions or need any assistance with regards to reaching your sustainability goals, please visit us at eRenewable.com to learn more. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. And we
1: welcome you into episode 190 of the Green Insider, powered by E-Renewable, alongside Mike Niemer. My name is Greg Frank, as we record at the end of June. You listen in early July. Uh, Mike, uh, the Houston summer is uh, very much in effect, gosh, these last couple of weeks. You know, I'm a Northeast guy, so I, I don't know that I'll ever get used to this kind of weather. Well, you can live here 30 years like I have, and you're still not <laughs> going to get used to
0: this weather. Heat index over 110, you just don't get used to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so uh, not enjoying it, but uh, good to be in studio today and uh, obviously uh, happy to have another guest on as we bring on Uday Taraga joining us. He is the founder and CEO at ADI Analytics, uh, which is a consulting firm for the oil and gas industry. And Uday, it's good to have you aboard. How are you?
2: Thank you very much. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so uh, give us a little bit of a background information filler on yourself, uh, how you got into the oil and gas space and you know how it kind of overlaps with the renewable sustainable space.
2: Okay, yeah. I, uh, I'm originally from India, grew up in India, uh, came to the U.S. in 1998 uh, for my Ph.D. Uh, went to Penn State, got my Ph.D. in uh, fuel science. Uh, After that, I went to work for ConocoPhillips, worked in a couple of roles there uh, for about six years, got my MBA from the University of Texas at Austin there. Um, After that, I went to work for Booz & Company, the management consulting firm, and in 2009, I started uh,
1: ADI. And what was the thought process when ADI was formed as to what you were hoping to build? And, you know, looking back on it now, 14 years later, do you feel you've kind of Set out what you accomplished to do.
2: Yeah, I've really enjoyed the process of uh, you know building ADI up over the last uh, fourteen years. Um, I started uh, the company uh, because I saw an opportunity for bringing some deep uh, industry expertise uh, and and energy expertise into consulting, and uh, started off just by myself, and uh, we, and, and have since slowly grown uh, the firm. It's, it's 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 been an incredibly enriching journey for me personally.
1: And tell us about the size now i mean how much have you grown
2: it and you know in terms of the people you work with on a daily
1: basis what's that like
2: we are about 20 people most of us are based in houston but as we have grown over the last few years we have added some people in other parts of the world so we have a couple colleagues in asia we have a colleague in europe uh, but most of the team is based here in houston well
0: thank you so much for joining us on today's show so when you started 14 years ago Were you mainly oil and gas focused, or did you have a different direction initially?
2: No, we were focused exclusively and entirely on oil and gas, Uh, but within oil and gas, we would work uh, the entire value chain. So we would work in upstream, midstream, fuels, and refining markets. Uh, Then as we grew, we slowly started doing more work in uh, power generation, transmission, distribution, And then five years ago we acquired chemical market resources which was another boutique consulting firm here in houston that allowed us to significantly expand into chemicals petrochemicals polymers and plastics Uh, and then in the last couple of years just because of the way the industry has moved you've been doing quite a bit of work in energy transition well you know
0: being here in houston and you shifting from the Basics of oil and gas and the, the subsidiary products of that to all the other products you now cover, that's exactly why all of us that are in energy come to Houston. It is the energy capital of the world, and so uh, I'm sure you couldn't be in a better city to be able to have, you know, your company
2: in to be able to cover all those topics. Uh, absolutely, you know, I um, used to tell uh, you know my friends who lived outside other parts of the U.S. or overseas that. Uh, from uh, a professional point of view, there couldn't be a better city. And I describe Houston as the oil and gas capital of the world. But Houston has done a remarkable job in the last five, six, eight years to reposition itself as the energy capital, right, with the number of early-stage companies that are here, the investors that now pursue a broad range of climate uh, technologies. Uh, so so the city is, is truly a great place to Uh, B, if you're in the energy industry.
1: You mentioned some of that repositioning, and you talked about your guys at ADI starting to
2: move more towards
1: energy energy transition work. How important is it in what seems to be an ever evolving space, just to kind of stay on top of the current trends and make sure that you're not falling behind?
2: Yeah, no, uh, I mean, that's clearly the something that a consultant has to do uh, pretty much every day, right? I, I wake up in the morning, uh, 5.36, and the first thing that I do is read a bunch of energy-related newsletters that come into my mailbox, right? And, and I spend an hour, hour and a half just reading through a bunch of stuff, right? And if you go, uh, if you come to our offices and you talk to an analyst, you'll find that they spend a lot of time doing the same thing as well, just reading on what's happening in the industry. So I think staying current on how the industry is moving, it's a very dynamic industry. It's an industry that plays a very big role in society. It's an industry that's influenced by geopolitics at a very uh, profound level. So I think just trying to understand uh, that is is something that's probably the first job of any consultant. So staying on top of things is something that uh, we take very seriously. And and I think we love doing that, right? I mean, that's the thing, right, is, is a lot of us love getting into understanding how the industry is doing, and and that helps. Well, at this point, I know you and I,
0: we had some preliminary talks about what we're going to talk about today. And I want you to tell us about carbon capture and what you're doing inside that marketplace. We've not had anybody on talking about carbon capture, so educate us a little bit. Tell us what, when people hear the word carbon capture, exactly what are they talking about?
2: Yeah, sure. So uh, carbon capture is at a high level taking uh, effluent streams coming out of, let's say, uh, coal or gas-fired power plants or coming out of industrial facilities that are rich in CO2, and and you essentially extract that CO2 out of those effluent streams. Uh, There are multiple ways to do that. The most uh, common and widespread method is You take an amine solution and pass the stream through that amine solution and the amine captures the CO2 out. It's essentially a way for industrial facilities to capture CO2 and reduce their greenhouse gas uh, emissions. But once you have that CO2, you have to do something with it once it's captured. So you separate that out from the amine um, using what is referred to in industry jargon as a regeneration process. You compress it, you transport it, and you either use for... Uh, enhanced oil recovery, where you pump CO2 into oil and gas wells in order to create some subsurface pressure to produce more oil. Or in some cases, you can just uh, store it subsurface, which is the S, the S part in CCUS, carbon capture utilization and, and storage. So
0: in your example of taking the CO2 and putting it into an existing oil or gas well to create more pressure to get more pro- uh, production out of it, you know, that's another prime example of how the circular economy comes into play with regards to carbon capture and then be recycling it into those wells, correct?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And the oil and gas industry actually has a lot of experience in using CO2 for uh, enhanced oil recovery. Um, and in, in, in addition to that, there's a lot of effort underway, and, and this is where a lot of early-stage companies have been very active uh, in recently, is to take that CO2 and convert that. Uh, into other products right so in other words find ways to expand that circular economy the pathways to circular economy so there are companies that are taking co2 converting it into concrete They're trying to convert it into methanol, which is a chemical. They're trying to convert it into sustainable aviation fuel. So there's a lot of exciting uh, innovation that's occurring in and around conversion of CO2 into useful products.
1: When you talk about those companies converting the CO2 CO2 into different things, I'm just curious at ADI, what kind of relationships do you have with them? I mean, in terms of your network and, and who you're talking to outside the company to better things inside the company, what's that like?
2: Yeah, so uh, ADI's team is uh, has, has very deep technical and operational expertise. Most of our team uh, comprises of engineers. Um, we also have a number of colleagues who have worked for several years in uh, technical roles, operational roles in the industry before they came into consulting. I mean, we have a couple of business analysts as well, analysts with business majors and all that, but. Most of our team has deep technical background. I I personally have a PhD, a couple of my colleagues have PhDs as well. So what that does is it allows us, it gives us a lot of expertise and experience to understand early stage uh, technologies in the energy industry. So we uh, are very differentiated in our ability to help early stage companies benchmark uh, the, the competitiveness of their technology, um identify markets and customers where they can commercialize their technology and find ways in which uh, they can drive adoption and and scale up uh, their technologies well you know for our listeners out there you know we always hear carbon capture carbon
0: capture it's all over the newspaper it's all over the internet so once that carbons c- captured and they decide to save it and they don't use it does that have a commodity price value that another company can sell it to another company for their use into, another, into their wells instead of them? Is, is, there com, is there a
2: value to that commodity, the CO2 that's in storage? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, let me approach that a bit differently, right? I, I think there's a big effort that's underway right now to see how can you convert carbon capture utilization and storage into a standalone business. Uh, And a lot of the oil and gas majors who have a lot of expertise in uh, subsurface, in in characterizing reservoirs, in understanding how to operate these reservoirs, are looking at CCUS and saying, okay, can we develop a business? Can we uh, go develop subsurface uh, uh, reservoirs uh, that can store CO2 And then can we develop technologies that will capture CO2 comparatively, cost comparatively, build pipelines, and then offer that as a service to, let's say, cement-making companies, steel-making companies. Uh, In other words, capture their CO2 emissions, uh, compress it, transport it, and and store it for them, thereby helping those companies reduce their greenhouse gas footprint. So this whole idea of CCS or CCUS as a service is something that's coming up uh, right now. So unless we can develop technologies and pathways that take CO2 and convert it into something useful at, in, in a cost competitive fashion, that CO2 by itself, the value of that is is fairly low. But the value of having extracted that out of emissions and helping companies reduce their emissions is by itself can be quite valuable. And companies are trying to develop a business model there.
0: Yeah, because that helps their ESG score and everything else Absolutely. that they're trying to do with Absolutely. regards to their investors, right? Exactly. You know, in our pre-talk, we also discussed sustainable aviation. We've had renewable propane, renewable natural gas. We've had responsibly sourced gas, We've but all these other things on. But nobody's came on and
2: talked about the sustainable aviation. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, as broader, as, as, as the world gets more economically prosperous, right, people want to travel and, and aviation is a sector that's just growing, is expected to grow even more as we get, uh, as, 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 you know, GDPs of uh, emerging economies grow and, and things like that. Uh, the problem with aviation is that there are no easy solutions to reduce emissions from aviation. Aviation is a pretty l- significant contributor of CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions, but the options to reduce emissions from aviation are fairly limited. If you look at potentially replacing jet fuel with, say, hydrogen or electricity or batteries, some of that technology is still in development and, and, and is uh, quite a while away. But but. Uh, but aviation and airlines today can't quite wait for those technologies because a lot of customers and consumers are demanding uh, or, or there's a lot of interest in uh, airline customers to find ways to reduce the greenhouse gas footprint of their travel, which is driving a lot of interest in sustainable aviation fuel amongst the airlines. Right, um, Sustainable aviation fuel today is... Fuel that is produced from uh, biomass based feedstocks, right? So these are, um, you know, fats, oils, and greases that you're getting from our McDonald's stores that are being disposed of. But you're taking all of that feedstock, you're putting that through a refining process to produce sustainable aviation fuel. And a lot of that is being consumed by airlines today. Most of the airlines around the world. Uh, have initiated pilots or have tried some version of sustainable aviation fuel to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions.
0: So it sounds to me like a lot of that process you described is what we've heard about on renewable natural gas. You know, taking the, you know, the fast, so on and so forth, right? So the question is, on renewable natural gas, it is seven, eight times more expensive than regular natural gas. So a sustainable aviation fuel Also seven or eight times,
2: basic aviation fuel cost? Yeah, it is. Uh, Well, it is not quite seven or eight times, but it is at least three to four X uh, the price of jet fuel today. Um, One of our flagship offerings is a sustainable aviation fuel tracker newsletter that uh, we publish every two weeks. So we spend a lot of time going and talking to producers of sustainable aviation fuel, uh, consumers, airlines who are uh, using the sustainable aviation fuel Uh, A lot of these companies have established private partnerships and contracts where they have made commitments to use sustainable aviation fuel if that gets produced in sufficient volumes. But the the cost of these processes to make sustainable aviation fuel is quite expensive. Even the most commercial process, which is taking fat soils and greases, hydro-treating it to produce sustainable aviation fuel, is quite expensive. Uh, and then there are a number of other technologies that are being developed that are actually even more expensive. Uh, So there needs to be quite a bit of work that needs to be done on the technology side on scaling it up on finding new feedstocks uh, to reduce the cost of sustainable aviation fuel. But today it's 3 to 4x more costly. So I would uh, just make the assumption based on those numbers and
0: those facts that for a Aviation company, to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, they're going to have to buy carbon credits, renewable energy credits. They have to buy a certificate to offset. Would that be correct?
2: Yeah, that is correct. There's a number of regulations that have come in place, especially in Europe, uh, and and that regulatory pressure is going to drive airlines to find ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And if they can't quite ramp up on uh, sustainable aviation fuel use because it's too expensive or because... The technology is uh, still uh, not quite uh, mature from a commercial point of view. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, it, it most likely will be because you don't have sufficient feedstocks going in to make sustainable aviation fuel. Whatever the reason might be, if airlines start struggling to comply with some of these regulations that are being placed, they will have to essentially buy, uh, uh, you know, uh, carbon credits to to meet their obligations.
0: Well, as a uh the guy on the Green Insider, we hope that they can reach some of their carbon footprint goals and ambitions. But as the consumer on the airline, I don't want it to go up three or four X for me to travel either. So it's
2: kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the more difficult problems uh, within the broader energy transition. right? I mean, if, if I take a step back and look at energy transition, I think... Uh, there's growing commitment on the part of a number of demand segments for uh, a broad range of energy transition technologies, whether it is CCS, sustainable aviation fuel, hydrogen, uh, batteries, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and the supply base, right, the technology for all of these things is slowly coming along. But I think costs still continue to be high, and uh, a lot of the players who are active in commercializing the first-of-a-kind of these plants and technologies uh, a lot of their effort today is focused on price discovery, demand discovery for uh, all of these offerings. Uh, and this will take some time, but I think eventually costs will come down and become more competitive. Speaking of hydrogen, what does your firm uh, deal in hydrogen? Do you have clients that you have to work with on uh, the hydrogen in the hydrogen space? Yeah, absolutely. We have done probably 35 to 40 different engagements over the last five years on hydrogen. We started out doing with a lot of broad-based scenario planning work, like how much... Uh, of the energy mix could hydrogen get in 2030, 40, 50. Uh, and then we uh, did a bunch of work looking, working with project developers on what kinds of blue or green hydrogen projects could they develop, what would the economics of that look like. Uh, then we went further down into the value chain, helping OEMs making electrolyzers, helping companies developing blue hydrogen technologies, understand the markets. And today, a lot of our work is focused on the components that are going into these companies, You know, whether it's uh, electrolyzer OEMs or uh, other parts of the uh, hydrogen value chain. So we are quite active and doing quite a bit of work uh, in hydrogen uh, across the board for large oil and gas and energy companies, for companies making equipment to make uh, green hydrogen, And then for companies making components for those electrolyzers. So we're active across the value chain.
0: Well, that's terrific. You know, uh, we've had past guests on from Mitsubishi and from Eight Rivers Capital, all in the hydrogen space. So we probably had, you know, four, five, six different podcasts throughout our three years on the hydrogen topic. And just like in those, just like what you just said, you named blue and green hydrogen, Everybody knows. I call it the Crayola box. There's so many different colors of hydrogen. It just depends what space you're coming
2: from, right? No, absolutely. And uh, you know, there's uh, a, a fairly uh, justifiable push to kind of move away from those colors and talk about hydrogen in terms of carbon intensity. But it's not as much fun uh, to, to. It's get not in. as much fun. You're <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, carbon intensity. That's kind of old news now. What's what? What's a pink
0: one? You know, let's let's talk exactly. different colors, right? Yeah. But anyway. Listen, I'll tell you what, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Um, I know you mentioned a sustainable aviation newsletter you put out. Mm -hmm. How do people sign up to get that newsletter or
2: any other newsletters that you guys put out? Yeah, sure. Just go to our website, uh, adi-analytics.com, and uh, you'll find uh, opportunities and ways to sign up for that.
1: All right. Well, there he is Uday Taraga, the founder and CEO at ADI Analytics. Kind enough to join us here on episode 190 of the podcast. Uday, thank you again for your time. For Mike Niemer, I'm Greg Freck. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from and leave us a five-star rating because as the saying goes, you learn something new every day and we were responsible for today's lesson. Again, this has been episode 190 of the Green Insider and we'll talk to you on episode 191 powered by eRenewable.